You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast with me, Julia Hobsbawm of Names Not Numbers and Editorial Intelligence in association with the Financial Times. This is a, um, a, a debate uh, about technology and identity, uh, the gadget age, privacy and individuality. And we've got a group of people who are experts in as much as you can be in such a wide uh, set, of, set of topics. Uh, and who've run businesses, written columns about this, philosophise about it, uh, and make their, generally make their living from talking about this stuff. Um, my name is Peter Bale. Uh, I work at CNN. Um, I've been a journalist for a while, and I'd just like to put on record after yesterday's session, which I thought was somewhat uh, sort of anti-technology somehow. Or I picked up a mood from there of being uh, fear of technology, which is my, my position today is going to be a profound enthusiast for the internet, for technology, for connectedness, uh, and for a very laissez-faire approach to that, uh, which I hope sets us up for a, a little bit of a debate with some of the people here. Louise, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Louise Chun. I'm a, an editor and journalist. Um, you might notice when you listen to um, Peter and me speaking that we sound rather similar because we come all the way from New Zealand. Uh, but it was a long time ago, and um, I've worked on a number of magazines and newspapers, uh, and I'm currently launching a website. Okay, so... Uh, le- sorry, yeah, forgive me. No, that was it. So let me introduce a couple of our, a couple of our panellists, and then um, Louise will introduce the others. And we'd also like to ask you a couple of questions of this vast audience here at some point, and obviously you're very welcome to ask us questions. Can I just ask here, who would consider themselves to be a regular Facebook user? Okay, about two-thirds. And who, who would consider themselves to be an active Facebook, uh, Twitter user? All right. And who knows what Moore's Law is? And it's nothing to do with Suzanne. <laughs> okay, could the ones who, don't know what's, who do know what Moore's Law is explain it to, to the others so that I don't have to? Um, let, let me introduce Andrew Keane. Uh, Andrew uh, makes a living, I think, as a professional sceptic. Um, I think he'd probably be called, preferred to call a polymath. Uh, Andrew's written two very interesting books about this whole area of uh, what the internet is doing to privacy, a new one called Digital Vertigo, uh, and, a, and a previous one called The Cult of the Amateur, which was essentially attacking the people I love, which is the, the blogging community, the people who tweet, the people who found a voice on the internet. Uh, and I think and- Andrew has a different view about the damage or, or worth of what they're, what they're contributing to culture. We've also got Ivan Mazur. Uh, from uh, who's, who's English by way of well, Russian by way of England now. Ivan uh, is a Cambridge maths graduate and a serial entrepreneur. He is, I think, a, a fairly profound enthusiast for the use of big data to uh, make our lives richer, to make our choices easier, and to really um, help us all connect more effectively with each other and help us connect with the things we might, might want to buy use or generally improve our lives. Is that right, Ivan? That's absolutely right. Okay. Okay. Uh, Suzanne Moore is a columnist for The Guardian. Um, I first met Suzanne more than 20 years ago, I was thinking about it, when uh, I was editing The Guardian Women's Page and she was writing, I think, for Living Marxism and I started commissioning her to do it. Marxism today. Marxism today, sorry. (laughs) With the notes that we had. Um, Marxism today. Um, And since then, she's uh, uh, become uh, better and better known, much loved, um, quite a controversial figure in some parts, 
Most recently, she uh, was uh, for a long time the columnist on the Mail on Sunday, pitched right after Peter Hitchens, which often made for some good Sunday reading. And now she's back at The Guardian as a weekly columnist. And uh, Simon May is a professor of philosophy at King's College London. Uh, just a little sidebar here. Simon said, I met you last summer in Hay. No, I didn't. No, I didn't, said Suzanne. And then they finally worked out they were sharing a house. Suzanne, <laughs> <laughs> very late. Uh, Simon has written uh, a number of books. One uh, is a history of love, and the other one is a collection of his aphorisms. Right. So we'll have some, some witty stuff today. Andrew, can I start with you? What the hell are you so afraid of? What? What are you so afraid of? Wake up. Um, no, why not, why not let, the, let the tribe speak? I'm a, what do you mean, afraid of... You have to ask the question more clearly than that. All right. You've written two books now which are essentially condemning the growth of the voice of the people, if you like, and saying that it's a challenge to our culture that established media is being weakened, that our cultural linkages and our, our whole way of thinking is being weakened by, by mass influence. Um, you know, it's a very strong stick that you've got there. What, what is it you're so afraid of with, with this flowering of what other people might see as a, a flowering of democracy, a flowering of a democratization of content? Um, well, I just give you, that's a big question. Let me give you one thing I'm scared of. So, uh, and I come from America, uh, Silicon Valley, uh, so things move very fast there. Um, so what I'm afraid of, Google just came out with a device some of you may have heard of called Google Glass, which is, you, you, you were very quaint. You said you're launching a website. What are you, like 1984? <laughs> websites don't exist. Do you know that websites don't exist anymore? Well, that's that fine. historicizes we you. What, what, what yeah, you we're asking launching? the questions, Andrew. Come on. So, so what are you so afraid no, of? What, well, what, what I say, what I'm afraid of is the websites aren't relevant anymore. Web, the, web, the idea of launching a website is, is, is archaic. Um, Google have come out with glass, which means that these are spectacles for, in English terms, where, like what uh, Simon's wearing. Um, and... Uh, Every five seconds, those spectacles take photographs. Um, and that data then is transported back to Google. Now, Google isn't unique here. Apple's coming out with a wristwatch. Lots of other companies are coming out with this new thing, which is essentially wearable computing. So what I'm scared of is a world of big data in which everything is recorded and the uh, everything is known about ev not only um, what we're buying and, 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 and what we're thinking, but what we're seeing. So the next step in, in terms of what I'm afraid, I mean, I'm very afraid of Google Glass because it means that our privacy is destroyed, not only us as deciding to wear these mm -hmm. things, but every, everywhere we look. What I'm particularly scared of is that Google has acquired our eyes. What, I, what I'm now most afraid of is when Google acquire our brains, and it's the next step. But so we get, in England, we get photographed by security cameras, you know, something like 40 times a day when we walk but through you don't walk. But you don't wear those security cameras. No, but there's no benefit to me from those security com ca cameras. There is potential benefit to me from wearing Google glasses. It may be an enhancement to my life and make me able to connect to people. I can, I can do it much more simply than I can pulling up my mobile phone. It may be beneficial to me to have that data available. Well, the notion of beneficiality, I think, is very problematic because it assumes some sort of utility. Mm -hmm. What do you mean beneficial to you? You mean you make more money? 
make no, it may make my life it may make my life easier. It's a convenience. I've right. So you have so, so that's also what I'm afraid of. The idea of computing as enabling convenience. I think that is the sort of the, the, the root of what I call digital utilitarianism. Mm. And I don't like that idea. I don't want convenience. I think we should be inconvenienced. What do you think, Ivan, listening to that? Well, I, I think wearable computing is, is the, the big deal of this year, but I look at it from a different point of view. So if you, be, if you look at the beginnings of wearable computing, one of the big things from last year was the, the Nike fuel band. And Nike has someone called a chief experience officer, which most companies don't have. And the point of that is because this device, the Nike Fuel Band, isn't simply something that's a gadget. It's something that allows you to change your lifestyle, your identity. So whereas before you'd buy an iPhone and you'd be an Apple fanboy, you'd represent yourself as affiliated with the brand Apple. Now you buy the Fuel Band and you don't care about Nike. You care about the fact that you're now not a lazy person sitting in front of a television, but you're now an active person. Your life revolves around you know, burning calories. It revolves around the steps you take. The, the marathons you, you train for. And I think that things like Google Glass and things like the, uh, the iWatch will give you that same ability to transform yourself. So I, I look at it in a very positive point of view uh, in terms of our ability to now change our identity that wasn't there before. Simon, this word beneficiality is the kind of thing that a philosopher would come up with. What are the philosophical <laughs> questions that underlie this, this inherent fear that Andrew has about being about all this data being recorded and the, okay. and the reward well, that Ivan sees? Well, I mean, there are several questions. One of them is, uh, you know, we're sort of back in the old realm of what used to be called theodicy. And theodicy simply asks the question, is the world, or major developments in the world, overall for good or for bad? And essentially, it's an absurd question, because there is absolutely no way of calculating that and reaching a decision. It used to be asked, or has been asked since time immemorial, about whether, as it were, life is worth living given all the suffering that, that, that involves. <laughs> and, you know, enormous theological systems were erected in order to try and answer that question. The very question was absurd, and I think this question is absurd. It's too early to tell yet whether the invention of the printing press was a good thing. And I think it's way too early to tell whether the invention of all these developments is, is, is a good thing. So are you saying we shouldn't actually be afraid and we should just go, go with the flow and watch it and be, be participate in it? Yeah, I, I, I think that one of the flaws, this is another philosophical problem since you want them, is the question of assuming that we have free will, that we have the will, which I don't think we have, but that, that we have the decision-making power, it's, it's a form of hubris, to decide whether or not history should take a particular trajectory. Mm or another trajectory, and we, we don't have that power. And I think the second assumption that's being made here is that we have such almost godlike powers. I think we, we have an invention here. Clearly, there are both sides of the ledger. I mean, it's, it can invade privacy, for example, I mean, for obvious reasons. At the same time, it's hugely democratizing. You know, these people who start major businesses almost overnight, the, what are they called, the Pixie Bell sisters who started who work behind the counter, beauty counter at Selfridges, and within three years, you know, Dior are asking them what they should develop for the spring collection. So this is a fantastic development, but at the same time, there are obvious threats to privacy. I see the big threats to privacy as being coming from government, not from private individuals, and I think we are in an era, but that's a separate question, in which democracy is being rolled back and in which the state is becoming horrendously powerful and however many safeguards are introduced, 
government is in the end going to invoke powers of one kind or another to snoop on our lives. So so that's that's a just to follow up then, because that, that, that sort of goes to the question I was asking Andrew about the, 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 the relative fear that might, one might have of Google having your data and the government having your data. Now, I, I personally feel a much greater exchange of value at the moment between Google, Microsoft, Twitter, Facebook and the others who hold my da- data than being snooped on by, by my own government. I, I, this is, well, can that, can you just elaborate that, on that a little bit? Well, that's exactly my point. I mean, um, I, I think that we are... Well, this is sort of leading a bit off the subject, but, um, you know, I, I have a... It, it's an intuitive feeling. I think that we're living in an era in which the state has become so immensely powerful, whoever's in power, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. whether it's socialists or conservatives, um, Republicans, Democrats, you know, look at, look at the way Obama's behaving mm-hmm. after all his campaign pledges to roll back the secretive American state. So I, I think this is, and even people with the best will in the world, you know, I think David Cameron, for example, is essentially a decent person, but he too is getting sucked into this zeitgeisty thing I could tell you why I think it's happening, but I think, you know, I don't want to go on too long, but I think it is happening, and I think it's a huge danger, and it's happening at just the time when these new technologies are coming on street <coughs> that will enable literally everything we do, every time we check our bank balances, every time certain people watch online porn, every time we do whatever it is, to be in principle snooped on by the government. Can I just quickly add something to that? Well, I mean, the government's always had similar abilities even before technology. So technology simply allows individuals to I agree. To do that. I said they are separate. So These that, are separate traits. That's the bigger, the bigger fear from my point of view, but I think that the positive aspects of that outweigh it. Um, I, I don't see technology necessarily increasing the, the, the relative ability of the government to snoop on us any more than it already has done. Really? I, I, relative terms, absolutely. Well, that, but I find that an astounding comment, I must say. What about you, Suzanne? What are, you, what are your thoughts on this? Um, about the government and, and you know, what, uh, if you compare, say, Google or the government, where do you think the greatest... Well, uh, it's ironic, because today is the stitch-up of Leveson. Um, so this stuff will, is going on by government anyway. Um, my... My fear on being snooped on is that it's already, you know, it's a kind of, it's not a future fear. It's happened. It happened a long time ago. Every, you know, as soon as you do online banking or you buy stuff, um, all technology is neutral. It's just how, how you use it and how your behaviour, how, how we change our behaviour. I mean, we can look at any technology and say, who uses it first? Well, we know, you know, when video came in, the pornographers use it first. The next lot of people who use it are um, people selling you stuff. Um, that's certainly happened with the web. And then we move on to the, a, a stage where then ordinary people, so supposedly ordinary people, start to use it. But the early adopters, of course, with Facebook and Twitter, um, have been artists, musicians, journalists, because it's about self-promotion. And um, I think, uh, personally when I'm using Twitter or Facebook, I, that I am choosing to invade my own privacy. Mm-hmm. I invade my own privacy every time I write something in a newspaper. You know. um, so I think the line between what is private and what is public has shifted and shifted quite a long time ago, anyway, um, in good and bad ways. I mean, we now hold... For instance, I'm not that concerned about politicians' uh, marital affairs. 
but we're all meant to be concerned about it. I mean, we are now. Um, I, I don't think that that should be a judgment that is made about politicians, but it is made. And, well, unless uh, they're hypocrites, presumably. Unless they, yeah, exactly. Unless they're hypocrites, but um, the whole, you know, all the time we're discussing what should be uh, um, private. And if you watch, I mean, I this whole conference. I mean, the whole idea of connected connectedness or whatever it's called and disconnect it, to me is not about technology at all it's about social class actually we live in the most we are more disconnected now than we were 20 years ago and that's because social mobility has stopped and technology can help that or it can hinder it but i mean technology which, which is, it doing is it helping or is it hindering at the moment i mean you've... it depends what country you're in i think and who you talk to and if you go to somewhere like india and you see the way that people are using technology as someone pointed out yesterday, you see people with mobile phones who haven't got toilets. Mm. It's sort of it sort of blows your mind because it's really hard to work out morally, kind of whether this is right or wrong or what should happen. Um, I think um, if you get on a if if you get on a bus and you see how people use their phones and you see it's also a generational thing um, that people under twenty, people under fifteen, their whole idea of what 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 is private. It's completely different, probably, to mine or yours anyway. Mm -hmm. um, we, we are like aliens to, to, to them. Andrew, can I just swing that back to you? Because you had a, quite a, what I think is quite a lofty view from Stephen, in fact, is, is, is in a sense... Simon. Simon, Simon. I'm sorry. Which, is, which, in a sense, is that your, your books are points in time of a continuum that can't really be assessed yet. And you're a, you're a professional commentator. You're trying to say what's happening now and predict the, the, the future a little bit, even if it is, you know, you're trying to put a, put a, a sort of uh, a line in the sand and say, this is what I believe is happening now. What, what do you think about this relative power? I mean, you, you live in Silicon Valley where everything is about young people like Ivan embracing this kind of world of let's all be open, let's hang it out. Your data is my data. Sharing is, sharing is inherently good. Um, and yet Simon then proposes this, this sort of bigger worry that it's actually the government we should be worried about. Well, I think Simon's wrong to say that, um, you know, he says that it's too early to tell whether the printing press has been beneficial, which is a cute thing to say, but it's obviously ridiculous. Um, and uh, I think he's wrong to introduce the notion of, what, what do you say, theodicy into this technological debate, saying that it's a, a philosophical error to break things down into good and evil. I didn't say that. Well, what did you say? I said that it's an error to try to do a, a global calculation and come out with a result about whether it's for the, on balance for the good or on balance for the bad. I never well, said so basically it's bad that's to what you said. Into good and so, um, it may be a philosophical error, but it's a human thing to do. I mean, if we don't do that, then we might as well give up. Uh, coming back to technology, the reason why all this stuff is so interesting is because I mean, David, uh, David Rowan from Wired is here. What, uh, the notion of being wired, of technology, used to be a, a kind of a geeky thing, used to be the thing that um, was at the back of the bookstore uh, and, and, or the back of the newspaper. You know, John Gapp is here, he writes for the, for, the, for the Financial Times. Technology has become the thing in itself. All this That's because it's so useful in people's lives. It's not well, because... You well, know, no, hold on, let me finish. Um, th that's your opinion. Um, you're supposed to be the moderator, <laughs> right? 
uh, technology is changing everything. For better or worse, maybe for better, it's changing the education industry, it's changing healthcare, it's changing our notion of identity. So if we're not willing to make the call about whether it's for the better or worse, yes. and we become what I would call techno-determinists and just accept, well, all this technology is central to the way we live, so let's just close our eyes and think of England and accept it. Uh, it's an absurd notion, I think. We have to be critical. For better or worse, we might say it's a good thing. We might say, well, this big data enables us to uh, liberate ourselves or, 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 or become uh, better citizens. Or, or more connected. But technology, if, if we're not able to make a judgment about whether or not all this technology is for the better or worse, we're not doing our job, not only as citizens, as human beings. Now, going back to Susan's point about class, uh, I think what you would find, and, and Peter asked the question, how do I feel about transparency? I think that the ideology of transparency, the ideology of openness, has become, to use you know, somewhat Marxist terms, has become the ideology of the dominant class. But that dominant class is global. So if you go to Silicon Valley, if you go to India, if you go to China, and I do a lot of traveling, so I come across these people all the time, the notion of openness, the notion of self-revelation, of networking, the Julia Hobbsbounds of the world are ironic, given her husband, are the new, uh, not her husband, that was a slip, uh, her father, um, are the new dominant class. So transparency is empowering. Therefore, the, the most powerful, and, and I, I would strongly disagree with Simon also about government, the most powerful companies are the ones peddling the ideology of transparency, Google, for example. And the great irony, of course, is that the more you talk about transparency, the more opaque you actually are. Uh, and I also think that's true of individuals. The more this dominant class talks about transparency and openness, the more opaque they are as individuals. So you, you wouldn't agree, uh, uh, Andrew, with Suzanne's assertion that all technology is in fact in, in neutral at the start? And that's why we have to question it now, because the outcomes are, are undecided, perhaps a silence. Uh, I, I think it's the wrong way of thinking about it. Technology, the, the cause and effect, this technology, this ideology of openness, the absence of a center, the critique of hierarchy, all, these post in, all this post-industrial attack on the, the traditional hierarchies of industrial capitalism are, um, are both a cause and effect of technology. The technology is already ideology. Um, so when we talk about the technology changing our lives, the reason it changes our lives is because we created it. The, the internet wasn't just delivered by a stalk in the middle of the night. It is a collection of values. By creating a network without a center, by creating a network that revels in transparency, by creating a network that attacks the very notion of hierarchy, that by definition is an attack on an, an old world. And it's no surprising it came out of Silicon Valley. So when the Silicon Valley people use the idea of the network to justify what they're saying, that in philosophical terms is a trick because they're the ones who invented it. It contains their ideology. So by definition, the internet proves their argument because they created it in the first place. For better or worse, you might argue it's and a good thing. I, Ivan, you're actually a bit, of a, a bit of a priest of this ideology, in a sense. You're, he looks you're like out a there, priest. You're out there actually de de deploying this, 
<laughs> you're living, you're living big data. Absolutely. Um, you know, you're, but you're, you know, you're an academic, you're a mathematician, you're a thinker. What do you think of this sort of challenge to the, to the, to the ideology or the, the concepts in which you're working, well, which is re reduced back to a very interesting sort of Marxist viewpoint, I think? I, I, initially, I, I think that we talk about names, not numbers here for, for three days, which is, uh, we, which is great. But we then forget all about that as soon as the concept of technology, privacy, invasion comes along. You know, we want to be Daisy the cow, not cow number 32 that didn't make it. Um, and yet, in order to do that, uh, for, for anyone that missed the, the, the talk at the beginning, that was, it was relevant to the breakfast on the first day, um, we, we need to provide people with information in order to be an individual. We are, on any website we visit, simply a number. It's how we're hashed. It's an ID sitting in a database. But as soon as we start interacting, whether we're interacting with a content site, CNN, for example, whether we're interacting with a retailer on Net-A-Porter, they start finding out something about us. And equally, as we're interacting here with you, the, the audience are, are to us numbers, the numbered seats. But as we then have a conversation afterwards and exchange names and exchange information, that, that creates an identity using which we can then tailor our content. And we live in a world where the content doesn't have to be general. It can be tailored individually. If you don't want to listen to what I'm saying, there's no, there's no reason for you to have to do that when you're in an online digital environment. And I think we forget about that very quickly as soon as there's a fear. Because we walk around, we give all of this information away freely in the offline world. And yet in the online world, we don't want to. Ivan, could you address perhaps the philosophical point that Andrew is making, though, is that we are now, you know, we've just had the election of a pope. Mm -hmm. but. You know, we're now in thrall to a bunch of Ayn Rand reading geeks in Silicon Valley mm -hmm. who have a hidden ideology, perhaps, uh, you know, who wear the it's same... not hidden, that's the whole point. Yeah. I, so, I, I, you know, what about those people? Are we, are, we swapping, are we swapping one established ideology of, of you know, Judeo-Christian capitalism, if you like, mm -hmm. for the ideology of hoodie-wearing geeks? It, it's unlikely that it's, it's got the prevalence that, that perhaps we're talking about here. I mean, it's still a very small community, and within that, absolutely, all, all previous ideologies have been replaced, uh, probably because there's simply no, not enough time. It's not even that there's any consistent arguments against Christianity or religion as a whole. It, it's merely because the world of, of technology startups is so exciting that actually you, you're so focused and zero. So down is the world of religious startups. Um, so, so is the world of religious startups. I, I, I assume so, but I think a religious startup, now, in, in fact, at the Wired conference last year, there was somebody who quite literally created a cult as an experiment, and there was a video <laughs> showing his, his journey of him creating a fake cult and getting people to believe it. So, I mean, no doubt it is, but with technology, you do have the power to, to change the lives of a lot of people and do that very, very quickly in a way that a, a religious startup would take a long time. It would take centuries to get. Is the fear of this, is that, Suzanne, is that unlike the car, this really is a religion? This is, you know, this is bigger than a car. This, this is bigger than the printing press. I think it's not, I don't think it's a religion at all. Um, any more than I think, you know, Jeremy Clarkson is a kind of god. Um, in, no, um, where I do agree with Andrew is that there is some sort of trick about the more transparent you appear, the more opaque you actually are. And I see that both personally and politically, that it's, people learn to present, I think mean, one of the themes of this session is identity. People learn to have several different identities. Um, and one of the reasons, for instance, one of the things that interests me is when corporates and politicians try to use social media is how appallingly bad they are at it. 
Um, why are they so bad at it? Because you know, people um, want something that they perceive to be real and authentic. And some people are very good at seeming real. Is that true? Yeah. I find British Airways absolutely fantastic. Oh, Virgin Media, which is appalling on the phone, is absolutely fantastic on, 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 on Twitter. Uh, Isn't okay. it about being um, authentic? Can't corporations be authentic uh, too? Um, I find most corporate. Well, I probably don't follow as many um, corporations as you do, but I follow a lot of politicians. And um, every time Ed Miliband tweets, I tweet back, oh, Ed, your passion is overwhelming me. Because um, it'll be something like, you know, I've got to go to Bedfordshire for a meeting. Yeah, but Tom Watson is a, is a brilliant political there tweeter, are, isn't he? There are about five. But, I mean, why, why are these people who really want to get their message out there, um, why are they so bad at it? I think it's, a, because it's actually a skill. It's something you pick up. There are courses in it, shortage it, right now on how to be better exactly. at it. They just need so to go So therefore, and that's not transparency. Yeah. That's learning mm. a persona. Well, it's, it's PR, learning, isn't it? It's PR. It's learning an identity. It's like media training. I mean, the same way as you can spot any politician who's been media trained because they won't stop sort of touching you. Stop uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've gone from this big philosophical issue. Let's, yeah. I think one of the other things that is really important here is the real shift in power is not between the state and the individual. Um, the real shift in power is between the producer and the consumer. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Drucker, the great Viennese management theorist, understood this. And the most empowered figure now in the 21st century is the consumer. Um, so coming back to your point, Peter, what I most fear is the enraged consumer. Mm -hmm. So thinking about enraged consumers, thinking about authentic feedback, thinking about how appalling corporations are, Suzanne, you've had a really uh, recent um, sort of flare-up in the Twitter sphere. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't know, Suzanne uh, commented, com made, a, made a, probably a bit of a throwaway remark. I thought it was actually kind of, I, I certainly got what she was getting at. It was then inflamed by Julie Birchall uh, in an article from the Guard for the Observer, I think, which is now withdrawn. Um, but you really flamed out on, on Twitter. You were attacked by trolls, you were attacked yeah. by, 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 by not just trolls, but people with genuine concern about, concern yeah, about I mean, that was always transgender. That, yeah, yeah. That, but I mean, what did you learn about that, though? <laughs> um, that was always going to happen. I mean, at some point, if you're on Twitter and you're a columnist, uh, at some point you're going to say that something and people are going to go mad. I mean, I've been a columnist for a long time. I've had hate mail, I've had death threats, I've had the police around, blah, blah, blah. But usually, in the past, it's been groups. Um, you know, Combat 18, you know, serious threats, mm. whatever. On Twitter, it's, you don't know who people are. Um, I was very interested in the reaction of the, of the police and the Met and the way they monitor this stuff now. Um, and they do take it quite seriously. But, but, but how could you have handled it differently? You're, you're criticising the way corporations handled it. But yeah. I, I noticed looking back in your, in your I was, Twitter... I was rude. Yeah. I am rude. Um, that's the thing, isn't it? This is what I'm talking about, uh, whether you're a real person. Um, when I'm on Twitter, I, I don't link it to my Guardian. I mean, interestingly, the Guardian wouldn't like me... wouldn't like me to give up Twitter because Twitter drives traffic to my column. At the same mm. time, they don't want me to criticise the Guardian. But to, to Andrew's point about the consumer being in charge, wasn't this just the consumers coming back and saying, hang on a minute, mate, you, you, you know, there, there, are there are niche people in your yeah. niche groups you've who are insulted by you, your piece. You've, un you've been rude and you've upset people and you must back down and apologise. And I said no. 
Uh, I wouldn't apologise because I didn't think I'd done anything wrong. So, um, in it, retrospect, do you think you could have handled it differently? In the tw in the in the Twitter area, not the column. Yes, of course. Of course, I could not be me, and of course, I could be much. You know, I could sort of say, yeah, I, you've taken this out of context, and I didn't mean that. Blah blah blah. I I wouldn't do it. No. Um, I th it's because it would have been inauthentic. And, uh, I'm now I'm now having a, I've fallen out of love with Twitter, so I won't tweet much. So I'm sulking. You know, I'm very mature, obviously. Um, and <laughs> but um, I wanted to ask you too, Suzanne, about the 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 way that it, that being a columnist has changed in terms of getting response from people. Um, well, massively. Yeah, and and do you think that it's possible? to absorb that kind of response or no. do you no because uh, i mean i go on twitter to escape from the guardian because um the guardian has comment is free so if i write a column and uh, say 700 people write comments underneath um which are moderated um so they can't say really really nasty things but they can say pretty nasty things and they yeah a lot of it um a lot of them are people talking to each other I'm expected to scroll down. The Guardian policy is that you engage with your readership. But in some ways it's, it's impossible to engage with 700 comments because how can you do that? Um, no woman writer I know um, at The Guardian can cope with the level of abuse that they're getting right now. I'm sorry, women just do get loads more abuse. Does it change what you write? What worries me... It doesn't change what I write. What worries me is that editors in newspapers will look at... Um, how many hits and how much comment is generated. And I can see definitely the most thoughtful articles don't, ge don't get that number of hits necessarily. Yeah. So I what's happening in the academic world in this? Same, sorry, you, you wanted to, well, well, to just, address it specifically. Just, just, just coming on this, because I think um, one, you know, if we can make a distinction between individualism and individuality, mm. so in, individualism being, you know, just expressing whatever you want to in order for example to be loved by others individuality being the real development of who you are as an individual even if it's in defiance of others those are two sort of different things and I think that one thing that does worry me about the age in which we could say that the, the, the mantra is now not know yourself but show yourself mm. is that uh, we have such a potentially vast audience out there to give us approval and we are all approval suckers I mm -hmm. mean we just are by nature that the the pressure to conform now uh, to, be, to, to, to say what is expected, it looks sincere and sort of spontaneous, but actually the, the range of emotion expressed, the range of difference expressed, I think, I mean, again, you know, I find it very hard to make global judgments. This, I simply don't know. I don't know how I even would be in a position to know, but it seems to me that the pressures to conform, to become more homogenous, although seemingly more individualistic, are now so great. You know, the, the, the peer group, which used to be family, friends, professional acquaintances, but, you know, you could probably measure it in the tens or maybe just over 100, is now potentially in thousands, yeah. tens of thousands, maybe, you know, hundreds of thousands. And uh, I think this is, this is undoubtedly, on a global basis, going, going to lead to a lot of homogenisation. That's, that's one of the things that really does worry me, I must say. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, you know, kids, for example, really caring less and less about what 
their peers, what, what those, you know, what teachers and so on think of them, and more and more, just what their what their peers think of them. Well, they're all what, stronger yeah. than it used to be in. Well, I think no. I think the human drive is probably unchanged, but the but because you've got the, you know, this uh, this enormous world out there to approve of you now, but by having the technological yeah. access, you know, the temptation to just go for, as it were, cheap approval is greater than it's ever been. It's almost unfathomably large. You I mean, mean a thumbs-up rather than a considered view? Yeah, a thumbs-up rather than a, than, a, than a considered view, you know, getting followers, there's, showing yourself. There's an extra element to, to what you're saying as well. So not only do you get the approval, but it's also possible to monetize. So if you've got those consumers yes. coming, Absolutely. not only do you feel great because there's 10,000 people reading you, but you can press a button, put an advert on, and it could Absolutely. improve the, the, well, those of, sisters the, the utility of your life. Well, have, done just, have mm. done just that and have become very rich through it. But also, through the internet, you can find, if you have a, 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 some sort of very rare interest, you can find like-minded people who, who you can no, share look, that rare so interest. there's so much that so is absolutely it's extraordinary. Both, both I mean, at the same time. The capacity of you know, people in Africa who don't even have clean water to attend seminars in Harvard yeah. uh, yeah. is <laughs> profoundly moving and yeah. is one of the great developments of our age. You know, but yes, I mean... So, so, so on, on balance then, is it, is it about getting over the... Because one, one of the people yesterday talked about people using mobile phones in restaurants. That's just bad manners. You know, yeah. It's like reading a book in front of your, in front of your uh, partner of 30 years. It's just, it's just bad manners. I mean, we, we got into this sort of rather um, reductive argument about is it good or is it bad. You've, you've just talked about something really passionate and, and wonderful, which is this access to information. Information, um, education, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. So... You, yeah. so you know, just to explain a little bit more about the, the, the beneficial side of this and, and not just this reductive connection is worrying or, or, or I'm worried about well, technology. Well, as I say, the, the sides that worry me most are privacy, levelling down and just saying things, you know, to, 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 to get cheap ticks, or, I mean, you know, whatever. Uh, but I, I think the great thing, but I mean, I'm in education, the, the great, almost unfathomable benefit of the internet is that billions of people who are excluded mm. from you know even secondary education never mind tertiary and so on can now get it not at some crummy local university which has no funding but literally by going on YouTube or, or by going to these online courses which now the great all the great universities mm. are doing and you know uh, this is this is extraordinary I, I mean this is absolutely I to, brilliant I have to I think that's entirely wrong on so many levels. Uh, firstly, I mean, you sound like a music exec, you know, you sound like a music internet entrepreneur in about 1992 when they were talking about how great the internet was going to be for the music industry. When it comes to education, the idea of everyone in Africa taking seminars in Harvard, uh, I, there's very little evidence of that. It's not what's happening. What you're seeing, say, with education, and you well, say, you saw the same way, you saw the same, you see the same across the entire media landscape, is um, the appearance of free content, which is mostly trash, oh. uh, which will be accessible to everyone, and then the appearance of uh, sort of fortresses, tiny, uh, privileged, wealthy fortresses. Uh, you, you're going to see, the, uh, in terms of education online, you're going to see universities and schools kind of blown up in the name of free education and access and networking and all the other stuff you're talking about. But there's no business model. 
all these education startups, none of them are thinking about profit. None of them are even thinking about revenue, let alone profit. So um, I, I would strongly take exception to that, to the idea that suddenly all these so-called people in Africa are going to have access to all this wonderful education from Harvard. It's not true. I would uh, totally disagree with that. So I've just spent six months doing the online Harvard course through edX. Well, you don't look very African to me. <laughs> Indeed not, but there's 100,000 people and you have access to all of their introductory videos, which I went through. And the but, vast but you already majority, have a university degree. I, I do too, in fact. I, uh, but, Where from? Uh, one from Cambridge and one from the Open University. So you're not very typical, right? Uh, indeed, but the other people were, the vast majority, from How developing you know? countries. Because each one of us posts a two-minute video about who you are, where you're from, your location, and, and talks about what it is that drove them to do this course. And all of these are online. So you can go through 100,000. Obviously, nobody has and what time. And what was the subject of the course? Uh, it was computer science. And it's a free course. It's a completely free course. Oh, um, Harvard, yeah. and Berkeley, and MIT. And bear in mind, you know, so we're just at the beginning. I mean, mm. sure, you know, they're, they're well, we've heard that one before, right? We're just at the beginning. I heard that in music. We're still at the beginning, but the, the whole industry has been wrecked. Well, some things that have been at the beginning haven't worked, but this one. But let's come back to this to me. point. I mean, let's, you haven't okay, given we got, a single we got a empirical example. example. You're saying example, that there are all these people. Example. Um, <laughs> you did computer science, and what there were people, what? 18-year-olds in Africa taking the same class as you. You have a, a computer science degree what, from, from Cambridge. So I have a mathematics degree. Right? You have a mathematics degree from Cambridge. And there were, what, people without degrees in, we keep on using the term Africa, let's, mm -hmm. I, it's probably a, whatever, from places. Developing countries. Developing countries, quote, unquote, using Guardian speak. Um, and they were on your level. <laughs> uh, you, you were able to share the same information. Were you in seminars with them? Absolutely. So and they had the same sort of understanding of mathematics and computer science as you? So the course was developed because it's a first-year course. I mean, it has an expectation of, of high school ability, which they all had. Right. But after that, it's developed as content based on one lesson. And who was doing the grading? So it was graded automatically. Um, what does that mean, automatically? So when it's a computer science, your, your projects are always a program. So therefore, there so no teachers. So end of end end of uh, end of, end of Simon's. Yeah. Okay. So this is problematic. Doesn't sound as ideal as Simon. Andrew, I think the, the great the thing that you've proved here is that is that you're you're in this world of being dumbed down as remaining as prickly as possible in order to no, in order to avoid. To, well, I've heard this stuff that oh, educate it's great because now everyone in Africa can take classes from Harvard. It's an absurdity. It's not true. Andrew, Suzanne, I, how's it going to break it down? Well, just, um, I just wanted to make a quick point about education, but um, as much as you say it's like the music industry, and as a journalist, you know, obviously, with all the redundancies, uh, yeah, someone has to pay for content. I, 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 I totally agree with right. you. I have to say I downloaded your book for free, <laughs> uh, Andrew. So, you know, it's, it affects all of us. For free? You start Why? You're a pirate. How did you do that? How did you do that? Yeah, because yeah, you can, un you know. No, I don't. No, I don't. I would okay. That would be piracy. Uh, a, big, a, a big chunk of your book, not all So do you not respect concrete, con so the she's value of content? So stealing. <laughs> oh, God, go this on Twitter. This is a public confession. Go on Twitter and say <laughs> next, you'll be, next you'll be watching The Wire and it's in, on BitTorrent. <laughs> but what I, what I did, just to bring it back to um, every, you know, schools and education, one of the things I really... Um, find difficult to get over to my youngest, I mean my, my oldest children in the 20s, but my youngest is 12, is that every bit of homework now is 
um, just simply go and Google this, Google that. There is no bit of homework that my child gets that would not require a computer. That, and she has never been taught about sources, secondary sources, what search engines are. And I would just like, as a basic part of the national curriculum, who's ever, whoever is in power, to teach children at a very at a primary, primary level basic, yeah. what, what that is. Because all they're told is things like, her homework will be something like, She's at state school. But it, but it doesn't mean that she should go back to a textbook that was printed no, in 1990 and doesn't know that there was no, water on not Mars. At all. I appreciate what it can do. What I'm saying is that <coughs> yeah. if you say to a child, to a, a, a 10-year-old child, um, Google isn't the only thing, there are other things, they don't know what you mean. I would like teachers who are uh, in their 20s, they don't know there's anything else but Google. I would like people to understand that, oh, those really old-fashioned things about... You check your information. Yeah. There's critical. other forms. So Simon, it's all critical, about, it's yes. all about yes. critical yes. thinking that's now, just, isn't it? Isn't yes. that the key, yes. the key yes. issue here? And I would yes. like children to learn that yes. at very young age. I mean, that's, but that's about, that's about the basic discipline of learning, of, of, of understanding, you know, how to check sources, of, of yeah, it's, 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 the, it's the method We'd and the like discipline of learning. So that becomes more important to the net. It doesn't, the, net doesn't the net doesn't destroy that. It becomes well, think, more important than that. I think the net that, can. Right? I mean, I think what it Suzanne says is right. No, definitely, definitely. I mean, Google just is easier. <laughs> you know, we're probably all naturally lazy. Yeah. And you do need a countervailing you force. You have to tell some uh, journalists that Wikipedia is not a source. Mm. But it is a source. It's a collection of sources. Yes, I know. An unrivaled collection of fabulous sources to find information about, about all four of you. It's a starting point. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Mm. It's a starting point. I think critical evaluation of, of evidence is something that, that's lacking in high school but that you pick up at university. But I think if we had a world of only Google and no books and nothing else, as long as we were careful to critically evaluate everything we looked at, it would still be fine to reference. Mm. Okay, we'd like yeah. to open this up a little bit to the to the general to the massive members of the general public who are here. Do we have a mic out in the um, Can't in the world? No, because we're recording this for podcasts, posterity, and of course potentially for CNN. <laughs> Especially now that we know Suzanne downloads downloads content without paying for it or recognizing its provenance. It might be a chapter. That's probably a promotion. We have a question down here from Tasha. Please, is that right? Could you Hi. say who you are and where you're from? Hi, as well, my name's Tijan and I'm from London. But it's not more of a, it's not a question, it's so much of a... I kind of disagree with what you just said about first-hand sources because I'm doing a university degree and last semester I did an essay on US foreign policy and I had about 30 sources in total, most of which were primary sources. I've had access to the National Security Archives. I have access to speeches that I wouldn't have had had it not been for the internet. I had access to, and aside from that, I had access to two programs, Dawson Error and JSTOR, which I don't know if you're aware of, but they are basically sites that you pay to become a member of, and then you have access to all of these books online, which is amazing for university students who can't afford to spend £30 on every single book. So the university obviously pays for it, and then you have a login code. It's absolutely amazing. But another point I want to make towards you, towards Andrew, about Marxism and... I think technology is bigger than communism and it's bigger than capitalism because it actually is democratic. I think technology is the biggest form of democracy and the biggest form of direct democracy that we have today. If you look at the Arab Spring, if you look at the Pix Woo Girls, if you look at millions, not millions, but like a good deal of bloggers out there who are making full-time careers of blogging who would be struggling in a very difficult economic climate. It's absolutely amazing. I think that 
democracy isn't an ideology, it's just kind of a way of life, and I think we're all just going to have to deal with that because it's going to be that way. Andrew, can you come back on that one? Because I, I really love the way, I mean, it's a huge vision because we've had a philosopher, a columnist, an entrepreneur, and an iconoclast um, talking about this issue and this idea that technology is bigger than communism and bigger than capitalism. Well, I, I think that's the wrong way of putting it. Um, they're not separate categories. You're, again, coming back to our philosophy here, that's a philosophical error. Um, technology is now the engine of a post-industrial global capitalism, for better or worse. I mean, I, I like it. It allows me to pay my bills. Um, but uh, so, and I would say that the tension and the complexity is in that, and this comes back to a lot of the themes we've been talking about, is that the internet has, the, the, the internet is a marketplace, a global marketplace, which allows us to buy and sell and promote ourselves and speak and do all the rest of it. Uh, it's been announced in the language of freedom and openness and personal liberation and democracy. But the reality of the 21st century global electronic network is of more and more inequality, which is being driven by this kind of capitalism. So that's the tension. Uh, and it comes back to everything about, uh, you know, we're, 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 cele we're celebrating this idea, ideal of democracy, and yet we don't understand why we're becoming more unequal. The, yeah. the, the, the reality of 20th century mass industrial society was one of much more equality. The internet is both a core, technology is both a cause and a consequence of that inequality. But you can't use technology in, in comparable terms to capitalism because it is what capitalism is. Uh, it's, it's the driver of this marketplace. Andrew, thanks. Ed, is that you? Ed Caesar? Could you just wait for the mic, please? And a, and a short form question rather than a long form question. Very, very short. Um, that utopian ideal about um, this um, generic and kind of confusing figure of the person in Africa being able to take the Harvard degree, just as someone who has reported from Eastern Central Africa quite a bit, I would say that is hokum at the moment because you know, every time you watch a video, if you're in the Rift Valley, you have to put a little dongle in the side of your laptop and you can watch about 30 seconds before your pay-as-you-go thing uh, runs out, and that's how people access the internet in rural parts of Africa. What you have is huge telephone penetration, so people can text each other, they can text each other money, they can use things like that, which, is ha which has a huge benefit to people's lives. But um, I just want to concur with Andrew that it is still, it's, it's kind of an elite thing. You know, if you're in Nairobi, yes, possibly you can take a course at Harvard, but if you're in somewhere out in the bush, you can't. But, um, yeah. I'm just I'm saying right. we're, in, we're in early stages, but I would say you have to be really careful about, about feeling good about yourself because we, all this stuff is out there and everyone can use it because it does take a certain base level of education and understanding of how these things work in order to access them in the first place. And I think the last thing you heard here was, was complacency. There, there's, I mean, I don't think anybody's, anybody's I think we are at the early stage of it. Just, just one thing, if I can come back to you on the Kenya thing. Yeah. We just did a, did a project with a company called Jaina.com, yeah. where we interviewed 20,000 Africans in 13 countries in a day and a half about their views about, about having an African pope. 
that simply, simply wasn't, wasn't possible you know, even a year ago. And, and those are ordinary people. They are the Kalahari Bushmen with a mobile phone. So you know, I think we are at that early stage. But the, it is, from my point of view as a, as a, uh, a publisher, incredibly exciting to embrace it and, and to know that there's a long way to go as well. For sure. Just, just one more. Sorry. Um, so yeah, one more thing. But I think you're, you're wrong to make the distinction between the internet and the phone. That's again a mistake. The, the phone yeah. is the internet now. There's well, no it's, no, it's not if you're using uh, Nokia from but 10 years ago, which is what you're going to have. There, I think two billion, two billion smartphones now. Yeah. In in 10 years, there'll be eight billion. Everyone's on the network. It doesn't. You don't have a need to have a computer. It will be. Everyone will have cheap smartphones. Not okay. Here. Yeah, just a, just a, a final point. Um, I think it's important to realize that so much of what we're talking about is about people trying to sell us stuff. So um, you, I, I just feel about this Nike fuel ban thing. You do not need a Nike fuel ban to run. You just you don't even I need trainers. I disagree. I think many people out there do need an IQ for I think that says more about us than it does about... I, I agree, but unfortunately it's the world we live in. We live in a world where sugar is added to every single food stuff. We watch television. Nobody wants to run until somebody tells you to do it, which is what Nike is. That again shows this increasing inequality. So you're going to have a tiny elite of people who wear Nike fuel bands, who use this data for their own benefit, and then a, a kind of brave new world mass who won't. It's the same with education, it's the same with media. No, what you're seeing is the disappearance of the middle, these extremes. No, no, we, we, we'll turn the, turn the, um, turn the, turn the uh, things that people on probation get around their legs into a Nike fuel band so we can track them while they're exercising <laughs> and, and doing their home probation. Could you just have your question, please? Uh, yes, I'm, my name's Richard Leary from Forensic Pathways. I'm, I'd like to move the debate into um, the original area where you started to talk about big data. Uh, which is a rather strange expression in itself. Um, and I'd be interested Why? in... Uh, sorry? Why is it? Because it doesn't mean very much at all. Big data. What's big data? So there's a definition. It's basically data sets that are too complex to be analysed with standard technology. So therefore, in order to be able to process them, you need new tools, new databases, new ways of accessing it. We'll call it complexity theory then, not big data, because it doesn't mean very much at all, really, in English. Um, the, the point I would like to go back to on this, though, is that and to dispel some fears, actually, about this big data revolution. I work in an area connected with uh, complexity and very, very large data sets. And believe me, the government can't make sense of simple data sets, let alone large data sets. So, uh, and this links back also to the later part of the debate where you started to talk about education and epistemology, how we make sense of stuff. Um, there is a big problem at the moment making sense of the information that we're, we're involved in, and the work that you're doing is really very interesting. Um, but don't assume that the government can do this. They don't have the money to do it, they don't have the will to do it, and they certainly don't understand um, what this is about. In the security arena, where there are lots of fears, our own security services have major problems following people with old mobile phones, let alone smartphones. So there are a lot of fears around this, and I think the interesting area is actually the work that this uh, uh, guy is doing, which is making sense of the data. Yeah. And that then links back to some of the things that you were talking about, which is um, in education. Uh, you know, what's the matter with the classics? What's the matter with evidence-based reasoning? What's the, what's, what's the problem with teaching randomised control trials? These are things that we need to be getting over to people, not assuming that they can, they can get this just by plugging into the internet 
and uh, taking a course and looking something upon Wikipedia that's been written by a crank somewhere, um, I don't know where to say actually, uh, so in the, another part of the world. So I think there are a lot of fears here that uh, need to be um, managed carefully. Just, but are, you un are, the, are the fears unfounded? Or, so the government can't crunch our data, so it, in fact it will con contract out that job or surrender, surrender that territory to faceless corporations or listed corporations in which our pension funds are all the beneficiaries of. Are you, are you saying there's a risk in this or that's actually a, it's just, just a no-risk problem? I think by the time the governments get to grips with some of the ideas, we'll have moved on anyway. The technology will have, will have found new algorithms to do but a lot of this stuff anyway. this comes back to my original fear. I mean, I don't mean to pick on Google, but Google is the dominant, and I do like this term, big data company. Google's business is understanding us. You're absolutely right about government. They're clueless. And that reflects the, the decline and the weakness, the legitimacy of the state. I don't think the government is the problem. Google's business, the whole reason for its existence, is understanding us. So when they have their self-driving car, when they have their glasses, they want to know more and more about us because their business model is selling us back to ourselves. So I'm sure Ivan's work is very noble. But there are many companies, and Google in particular, whose work isn't as noble. It's not scary in a, in a, in a, in a Orwellian 1984 sense. Uh, it's, it's, it's scarier in a much more commercial manner. And we are more and more known. Google, Google knows more about us than any government ever knew. But my advice would be to separate this discussion um, concerning the state and state power um, in my experience, the state is not concerned with privacy, it's concerned with power in this area, yep. uh, where we assume that they're representing our interests in privacy, and it's not so. Susan, you wanted to come no, on I just that? wanted to ask you a question, and um, uh, back, um, a naive question, but I, uh, we are told the whole time that scientific data is going to be opened up, CERN is set up on those principles, um, I, I wondered, I mean, do you, do you see benefits in that? Do you actually see the scientific community being able to share its data, even if it's, if it's been privately funded? Uh, watch this space, it's happening. Um, yeah. in, in the work that I'm doing, we, we not only have developed a lab on a chip, putting the chip in the sky, and then getting scientists, this is in signal processing of images, mm. um, not of content, but the, the source of an image, which mobile phone in the world uh, you'd be interested in this, um, created an image. Yeah. But putting the chip in the cloud and letting other people share that information and okay. use the technology. Thank you. Is it Matt Peacock up there? Yeah, yeah. Do you, Matt, would you like yeah, to ask? And then Leo, Leo Johnson down here, please. And did you have a question, so I'm, supposed to, I'm supposed to be lurking at the back. Uh, Lurk away, but um, But I'm going to cheat and ask just a quick follow-up to the point about Google. And um, uh, really, why is it not frightening in an Orwellian way? for a company that ha has uh, private shareholders um, and is not democratically accountable to the people it observes, um, why is that not frightening in an Orwellian way? Because Orwell was interested in Big Brother. Uh, he, was a of, he was a critic of totalitarianism. Um, and I, I don't think that Google um, is a totalitarian company. It doesn't represent or claim to represent a single truth. Uh, so it's frightening in a, I can't think of a better term, a post-Orwellian sense. Um, but it's wrong to use Orwell. I think Huxley is a better example. What Huxley missed, if you put Huxley and Orwell together, right? So 
if you if you if if you make Huxley's Brave New World the Orwellian power, there was no, there wasn't much evil in Brave New World, and all there was in 1984 was evil. But if you combine those, the really scary thing about Google is its absence of a single truth. There was they don't have a world view. Their world view is selling us back to ourselves. So again, it reflects this sort of bizarre. Ideology. I, I think they would say their worldview is access to information. Well, their worldview is this, what I would call, you, you, I, in my book, Digital Vertigo, I yeah. talk a lot about Bentham. It's a digital utilitarianism. Leo, Leo Johnson, would you like to ask a question, please? Or I, make an assertion? My assertion is I bought your book and I read it. I paid for it with my own. Excellent. Good and, it was, and, it was, and it was really, really enjoyed it, Andrew. Really which enjoyed one? it. Which one? The Digital, digital Vertigo. Vertigo. Really, yeah. really enjoyed okay. it. The other one's very good. Which I don't, I don't well, think you, you should all buy it. Come on. It's really good. I can buy it. It's really good. Um, but but um, Kentaro Toyama has this quote, which is, technology is just an amplifier of intent. It's what? An amplifier of intent. And it seems to me that you know you've both sides of this discussion have raised the different aspects that technology can bring out. It's raised the bad, it's raised the good, but it's kind of shelved or ducked out on this question of the intent being the thing that really directs. And if you go back to one of the earlier forms of connected societies, i.e. the Greek polis, the word politeia, it meant both citizenship, but it meant also the rules of being a citizen. That we weren't in that citizenship just consumers. We were actually beings with rights as well as obligations to other citizens. Can we look at our obligation not just to accept this technology yeah. as something that arrives on our heads, but to shape it in line with our obligations to each other? And, and presumably, Leo, not just to be consumers. I think, that, I think that the point that you make about it, the, the, and it's the point you make, Simon, about the beneficial aspect of it from, from uh, an education point of view. And I, I don't think you're arguing it. You know, let me be correct here about it with Andrew. He is not arguing against the internet. He is warning about that we should go into this with our eyes open, correct? But I think that idea of a, of a joint obligation to be, to be a citizen as well as a consumer... That it's a bivalent force, so it's up to us to shape it. Excellent. And, that, but that, and that's where the real tension in all this is, is that... We have more and more, what, again, the internet is both a cause and a consequence of an increasingly fragmented individualistic world um, where we're all kind of brands. And we've, we've fetishized the idea of community on the internet. But every community on the internet is just an extension of the individual. So what the internet is causing is weak individuals and weak society, which results in weak societies. And I think your point, which is absolutely right, is that strong individuals create strong societies. We're missing both. Can so, I just respond to the point on obligation? So a lot of people are taking this very seriously. Cambridge has just uh, created the Centre for Existential Risk, and their main focus is the concern about the possibility of an artificial gen general intelligence. So genuinely, there are many academics and a lot of industry support to prevent us from having a machine that will accelerate its growth faster than we're able to keep up with it. Susan, I sense you want to chip in on this area of obligation versus consumer, or...? Yeah, um, I think Leo's point's really interesting, and... The idea that these communities are weak. Um, yesterday in the discussion, um, 
I almost disagreed with everything that everybody said. <laughs> uh, for instance, you know, um, Ed's great talk about long form. You know, one of the things the internet's done is make things shorter. I mean, I would like lots of films to be shorter. I would like lots of books <laughs> to be shorter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I, I, I got what you were saying, but I, I just, I'm just sort of putting the other thing. But um, I was sitting next to somebody who's, um, I think she's not here now, but she's a writer. Both of us, when I, met, when I said yesterday, I have had more intense, intimate relationships online with people I've never met than people that I have met. Mm. Um, she is um, a, a writer too. And if you're a writer, sometimes you have people who write to you or email you now over, over several years, often people in prison, things like that. And you're never going to meet them, but you have an intimate um, connection to them. And the idea that these communities are weak because they're not always... Um, I think two things happen. One is that we want more events face-to-face -face like this, and people like to see each other. But... Um, to, Le to Leo's point about how can we actually be citizens and subjects and sort of get together and have this space, there was a lot of chat, wasn't there, about uh, clicktivism and we could all change things by signing a petition. Um, and clearly there are limits there. But we can see, I mean, certainly on specific single issues, for instance, the woman that died of... Um, the, uh, by not being given an, ab an abortion in Ireland recently. Um, the reaction in the social media, that story would have been a small story in Ireland. It went global and people went nuts. They thought it was terrible that this woman had died in these circumstances, to an extent that there would be small changes, just small changes in the law. Now, this is not a strong community, but it is a result, I think, of something happened there because of our ability to communicate. Susan, I just want to make sure we get Mark's question. Mark Sorry. Henderson from Welcome. Thanks, Peter. Mark Henderson from Welcome Trust. I, I wanted to pick up on something you said earlier about scientific data, actually, because one of the, the, the key things in this is uh, actually that scientific data needs to be published uh, in an open access format. Um, that's something that we now mandate of uh, everybody who we give a grant to. Uh, we actually provide them with the funds to make that uh, open access. Uh, another just small point I wanted to make, just more uh, generally, was, was actually the effect uh, that um, online opening up uh, can actually have on quality as well. It's always assumed that it's to be a race to the bottom uh, as a result of that. But I think it can actually very often have the opposite effect. We heard one aspect of it from Ed yesterday in the way that actually Conversely, the existence of short form like Twitter actually encourages long form because it allows people to find it uh, in the first instance. And secondly, if you look at uh, the way in which bad journalists have very often been uh, met their comeuppance through uh, the power of online, um, so for example, Johan Hari and uh, his uh, Wikipedia editing and uh, his plagiarism were basically easy to spot because it's only a Google search away. If you follow Jeremy Dunn's, the blogger and author who uh, has ferreted out numerous examples of big-name journalists and writers who are plagiarizing, uh, it's really interesting. You wouldn't have been able to do that in the same way before. So it can have a catalytic positive effect on quality as well. Thanks, Mark. Any very good point, Louise? Do you want to close it? Um, yes, uh, we're going to have to close now because we're moving on to our, our next um, event. But does anyone have any last closing statements they would like to make? 
I think there's been a lot of talk about the fear, the fear from many angles, the fear of people using technology in the wrong way, the fear of governments using technology in the wrong way. I, th I think it's, 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 often remember, it's often good to close and, and remember all the positive aspects that have come. You know, the ability to, to keep in touch with, with friends and family abroad. The ability for me, for example, to, to monitor my mother who's not well by placing a camera in her flat. The government has had that ability for 100 years. <laughs> I've never had that ability, so I can be here for three days without worrying that something's happened to her. Here, here, <laughs> Andrew. Well, I think the, the, mother, the mother example is an interesting one because what immediately occurs to me to me is as you have this shift from again the 20th century capitalist or a big government capitalist model in the old world you had a national health system that would have would have looked after your mother right so now as the state begins to disintegrate and fragment which is a kind of rebellion of this consumer citizen against paying taxes and all the rest of it we have technology that enables you as an individual to become a doctor and monitor your mother. Uh, and you're saying, well, that's so we should, should, should think highly of that's one reason why the internet's a good thing. But I think that's the wrong way of thinking about it. You need to think in a bigger sense, is this a world we want? Where we, have, yeah. where we have this shriveling of the state, the disappearance of national health and all that kind of thing, and instead, we're all empowered to become the state. Um, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating example because it does show the moral complexity of, of what's happening, particularly given technology that will literally enable us, will enable you to monitor your mother's health. Thanks. But so, I must say, I think that you're reflexly attacking everything about these I'm developments. I'm not attacking you. I'm Actually, saying it's what, interesting. What, our friend here is doing is he's going back to an era when families did, when children yes. did care about their yes. parents and when they didn't subcontract everything out to the state. B, the state is actually growing the entire time. Public expenditure, which, which is one of the measures of state size, has been growing in virtually every Western country consistently. And I just would repeat what I said at the beginning. I'm sorry, but it is too early to draw up a balance sheet of whether this is for good or for bad. We, we, we have an enormous dynamic. There are huge benefits, education and others that I've mentioned before. There are great downsides such as the pressure to conformity, but it's simply too early to draw up the balance Thanks, sheet. Son. Suzanne, mum can. Is that the future? My children might not, so the, you know, they block me on Facebook. But, um, <laughs> I, I just, well, the good thing is it's enriched my life. The bad thing is it's destroyed my job. Thank you. So we're all being disintermediated and we're moving on to the next session. <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks to the panellists. That was the Names Not Numbers podcast. There are many more on namesnotnumbers.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>